G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve. Welcome back to another week. This week, I am recording from home on Wadarung country, and I'd like to extend my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands wherever you're taking our podcast this week. Now, several months ago, I sat down with the first person I know who was about to attempt Mount Everest. I had a zillion questions for him, and I can safely say that he's back home in Australia, he's back to work. We got the chance to sit down with Trent Thorne to find out all about that trip. If you haven't listened to episode one, here's a reminder. Check it out in your show notes or just search Trent Thorne, Humans of Agriculture. So here we are several weeks post-climb. We thought we'd sit down and check in with Trent and find out more about what the trip was actually like. Now, we're going to put it up front. Unfortunately, he didn't make it to the top of the world. We'll have a few stats here in a second to kind of just quantify and put it into perspective. But after a huge expedition, he made it to the final stage before Everest. Literally, he was six or eight hours off doing the final ascent to the top and his body just decided that it had had enough. Now, if you remember in episode one, Trent was saying that he wouldn't put himself or others in danger and the descent from Everest or any of these climbs is actually rated as being more dangerous than the ascent as fatigue and exhaustion can catch people out. So, unfortunately he didn't make it there but he did have a heck of a trip. He achieved so much but let's put this into some context. 2023 is shaping up to be one of the deadliest years on Mount Everest with, at this stage, at recording, 17 people having died, including at least one Australian. As of July 2022, probably need to find some updated figures here, but 6,098 people of the 8 billion on the world had actually made it to the top of Mount Everest for a total of 11,346 total summits. So, in this chat... We want to find out from Trent what it was like, what actually happens up there in Nepal at base camp and kind of beyond, what he discovered and learned about himself, his team, and yep, a couple of them did make it to the top. He chats about the power of nature, about being removed from the outside world somewhat-ish, and what the recovery has been like since. Let's get into it. Wow. Yeah, look at your face. Yeah. And so I don't know why I was looking so stern. It's because I'm not really used to taking selfies, I suppose. But The beard is beard's out. <laughs> <laughs> the beard is absurd. Anyway. God. Well, Trent, I think, what are we? You, you're back. How long has it been? Two weeks, three weeks that you've been back for? Uh, three. Yeah. In, in Australia, it's three. I've been back off the mountain. Basically, yeah, it's a month now. Like in Kathmandu, I was there for a week. It's incredible because... After the first episode we did, which was obviously pre-climb and chatting about the different scenarios and the preparation and things you did, but just the different people that were following and messaging. And I had a few different people message me at different times going, oh, how's he going with it? And I was checking the Adventure Consultants Twitter a fair bit and then their website blogs, which was great to keep up to date with. It was literally yeah, that last few days where it was, I think it was, was it your tent buddy who made it to the top? Yes. I was like, no, where is he? Where is he? And then I was like, okay, what's happened? And then started, obviously, because you were off Twitter at this stage. It was the last few days, the very last moments. But I just want to know, how are you feeling now? You're a month post-climb. Yeah. Well, look, I'm. it took a I, I went straight back to Kathmandu after the climb, and it is fair to say my body and my mind were just pretty shattered. I had a pretty severe chest infection, which unfortunately dragged me off the mountain right at the end. But the cough I ended up getting just took 
quite a long time to go. So I, I sort of, fortunately, I wasn't due to be in Kathmandu or leave, not leave Nepal till early June, the 2nd of June, but there's no way I would have been able to get on a plane until that time anyway because my cough just would have cleared the flight. Like it was just really, really chronic. And then once I got back to Australia, I pretty much went straight back to work, but it was it was at least another week of being at work before my brain came out of its fog. It was weird. It's a bit hard to describe, but it was sort of like my body and my brain weren't really working together and I'd find I'd just be doing a lot of staring off into space and that wasn't like a level of wistfulness. It was just more a case of I just think my brain was still in shock and maybe not used to processing so much oxygen. But then the weirdest thing, which is still probably a little bit of the case, is my body is just rejecting me entirely in terms of like the fitness because I have been going back to the gym. I have been doing some running, but it's like my body has not done anything for six months. So it's like it's reset itself almost. It's I've been getting the pain you get when you go for a run for the first time in a long time. It's because it, and I can't explain any of it. It is, and as I said, the only thing I can sort of explain is that my body's rejecting. It's gone through something traumatic, and it's it's basically um, saying no to me in some way or shape or form. So, other than that, everyone's been incredibly supportive. I've just really enjoyed catching up with so many people. So many people just want to hear my story and and what it was all about, and just to delve so deep into the minutiae of of the entire trip. And I'm absolutely have zero problem doing that but it, look it has been pretty good overall getting back but i i do find occasionally it still feels a little bit weird because at one stage not too long ago i was standing in the middle of nowhere freezing my ass off at least not losing your gloves that was one thing i was very mindful of looking at in photos I was like, okay i did see that because i know we talked about that and it's funny Oh, it wouldn't mean funny for the individual's concern, but sitting on the lotsy face, I did see a couple of gloves, gloves just slide past me down the face. So you know that someone up above you is not having a good day and their trip is, becomes, you know, tenuous if they can't find a replacement. So I did see it happen in real time. And so you did just talk a little bit there about the body, but let's start probably at the back end of the trip and where I was really, I guess, gunning for you obviously the whole way, but the gunning for you was the last few days, there was really a 24-hour period where the plan was up Everest, back down, and then up Lotsey. And you were sitting there in eyes view of everyone summiting Everest, and the body had other plans for you. What was it like and what actually happened? Well, we'd started a couple of days earlier down at base camp, and but every day we were doing something quite energetic. We had one rest day at camp too, but for a five-day period, we pretty much had big days just moving steadily up the mountain, as I said, save for one day where we rested at camp too. So the final day before summit days, you're basically starting at 7,300 metres. You're just, just starting on oxygen, and that is the final climb up the Lotsy face. So we had about 700 metres of the face to cover that day, and when I looked at my garment at the end of the day, I basically covered 1.3 kilometres. There's a little bit of traversing up the top, so it's not a big day when you just look at it like that. It was 1.3Ks, but it took us 10 hours to cover that. So you're basically doing about 100 metres an hour, and that's because the Lotsy face is just, it's the, way, the best way I describe it, it's like an ice ladder. So it's its not vertical, but it's near on vertical, and all day all you're doing is just literally step after step just going up this vertical face, and there's really no place to stop. There's really no place to rest. You've got people 
well, whilst there's no big queues or traffic jams up there, you know there's other climbers who are back behind you, so you've got a pressure of just keep on going, even though you're going at that incredibly slow rate, that's as quick as you can really go. It's a big day. What I'm trying to say is it was just a huge, huge day. I think we had expected, because we, we started at 4 a.m., so it was freezing cold we started, but we did that deliberately so we would, if there was going to be a queue, we'd be at the head of it. Most other teams started at 6. So we got in after that 10 hours, we got into the high camp at the South Coal at 2 p.m. in the afternoon with a view to 10 p.m. that night heading off for the summit. So there was always, we'd probably planned on being there a little bit early, but the day just took longer. I hadn't even really noticed how fatigued I was at that point. All I wanted to do was get a bit of food into me, get some fluid into me. It's very hard at that. I found all the way up the mountain above camp too, eating and drinking has just becomes hard. And I, I think the way to try and explain that is that because it's such a low oxygen environment, your body doesn't feel like it needs it, even though it's something as obvious as water. Even just taking a gulp of water becomes hard. So you're forcing yourself to drink every gulp of water, every mouthful of food, but you know you need that for the energy stores about what's going to happen the next day. So you're constantly conscious that I need to be pushing this food into me, this drink into me. So I got into my, my tent because it's freezing cold at the South Cold. There's always a little bit of a wind there because you're between Everest and Watsi, so it's a shoot for the wind. We knew that going in. I got into my tent, started doing a few things, and then that's when I started noticing, I suppose, because I started to cool down a bit. My calves just really, the best way I can describe it is that they just became like lead bricks, sort of. They didn't freeze up on me, but they were just like a rock. And after a couple of hours of me just trying to get them moving in the sleeping bag because you just there's no point being out of the sleeping bag it's too cold i've pretty quickly realized that the time frame between 2 p.m and 10 p.m was not me enough to get my calves working again so i made the call after probably by about 6 p.m this i could feel i knew my body well enough that just there was no way i could do what i was about to try and do and the decision was it was a relatively easy decision to make in terms of I know that if I go up there, I'm going to put myself in danger. I talked about this last time. I was going to put my Sherpa in danger. I just wasn't prepared to do that. And I also was conscious of, and I think I was definitely stressed last time. I like my fingers. I like my toes. And there'd been a lot of frostbite on the mountain. It was actually, it's been the worst year for frostbite ever. The, the mountain was actually colder this year, which manifested itself in people were first taking more time. They obviously suffered more frostbite injuries. So I just made the call. I just knew that I could go up the mountain. I could probably get to a certain point. I knew I would be able to get to the top. And I thought, what's the point? That's just, that's irrational. I'm better off staying here, keeping my powder dry, and hopefully my legs come good and I can try Lopsy tomorrow. That was, that's the way I, I rationalized it to myself. I just knew it was the right, it was the right decision, but it, it still I, it immediately stung for the obvious reasons because I knew that my one shot at it was gone. You know, like I, we talked about it last time being one and done, and that's, Still my intention, I have no plans really to ever go back. I'm sure there's a few people in my my team who will be speaking to me in a year's time or two years' time saying, let's have another shot, but I'm pretty firm in my view that it won't be happening again. So, look, at 10 p.m. or 9 p.m. when my teammates started rustling in the tent, they because I already told them at 6 o'clock, this is what I'm doing, I'm not going. And I think they thought I was just speaking out the side of my mouth or something or just not you know, not being fair income. And at nine o'clock when they started prodding me in, in the sleeping bag as they were getting ready, I said, I'm sorry, guys, that's my decision. I've made it. It's the obvious one and I, I can't 
go back on it and I don't regret the decision. So that's basically, that's effectively what happens. My teammates left and in full credit to the four of them that left, the four of them summoned it and as did all the Sherpas. So, yeah, it, frustrating doesn't even begin to describe the feeling, but I was obviously incredibly happy and, and thrilled for them because I could see the expressions on their faces that when they got back, you know, they, it was it's what I wished I was doing, but I just knew that I just couldn't. And then the next day, obviously, uh, well, I stayed in the tent all that day. They were up there, obviously up there summoning. They came back. The plan was at midnight to leave for Lotzi. I got up. I went. I started climbing up Lotzi, and I could just within at least 50 to 75 metres of the start of the climb, I just knew my calves were cooked. And I even said to the Sherpa, a little bit lower now. I said, this just isn't happening. And the Sherpa, with all credit to him, he said, look, just let's keep trying. Let's just go slow. Let's just keep trying. And I tried for another 30 metres and then you could just feel there was nothing. There was no energy. My calves were just, they just weren't there like they had been everywhere else on the mountain. So, I look, that felt bad as well, but it also at least made me know that the day before my decision was the right one, you know. So it gave me a little bit of comfort that I hadn't missed out on Everest. It was my calves were in trouble. So then we, I had to get off the mountain. So at 2 a.m. in the morning, we just started heading down the hill, down the Lotzi face, which took six hours to descend. And then by the time I started getting back to camp, I was some of the things I'd been experiencing on the mountain had started to really manifest themselves, which was my chest infection. I didn't know it at the time, but I proceeded over the course of that day then just to go downhill quite rapidly, like I lost my voice. My cough just became really, really shocking, and I won't, for the benefit of your listeners, run through all the symptoms. But things were moving in a bad direction, and because it was, well, I was at that still at 6,500 metres, and I still had a very long walk out the next day back down to base camp or another seven-hour walk minimum, which it would have taken longer the way I was feeling. Like it would have been, it would have been just awful to the point where I would have really, really struggled to get out of there. They made the call to get a helicopter to get me off the mountain, which as I said, was not the way I wanted to end my trip because that basically meant I had to fly all the way back to Kathmandu to go to hospital. But it was the right call again. Like I was not in any fit state to be walking off anywhere at that point. So again, I don't know whether my chest infection had anything to do with what had transpired. I, I just don't know. I really, it's just an unknown, unknown. And I think, well, you'd said it before and you kind of reiterated it then though, that you weren't willing to take risks that were going to put other people in danger and you absolutely stuck by that though. And we're thinking, yes, of yourself, but also of those others. And what I was really interested in, I think you did a tweet when you were recapping it and you'd mentioned that potentially you think you might have been able to get to the top of, say, Lotzi, but it actually would have been the dangers that you would have put yourself and others in coming down, that that's where other people find themselves in trouble. Well, that's right. And if you look at Lotzi, as I said, I tried and I could have still kept going up. As I said, my cars were cooked, but all it meant is I could have slowed down to an absolute crawl. And like, we've got to remember how I said earlier, we were already out of, out of snail space. Like, but then you're moving into, as I said, into frostbite territory. Plus, given what I now know that I was beginning to really start suffering from something, I might have felt at that time, but I was clearly at the very nascent part of a sickness. If I'd gone up the hill another three, 400, 500 metres, I then would have had to come down those 500 plus the 1,000 metres of the lotsy face. You know, like it... I don't know where I could have ended up. Um, so just it's one of those things that I suppose it was lucky that I didn't go up the Aussie face that day because I really, like things can, you know, turn bad very quickly up in those zones. If like, as I said, my my lungs just basically 
were shot as well with this chest infection, like my capacity would have been reduced, which would have meant my ability just to even move down the mountain would have been compromised. So it's not something I've really thought a lot about, but I, I am fortunate that I went down when I went down because I was in a good, I was in a better place to be when I actually started getting properly sick, which happened quickly. And one thing which well, you're probably not aware of, but we, so while you were climbing, there was obviously the Australian and a tragedy around it. We had a few people message us straight away going, have you heard it from Trent? Like, where's he at, et cetera. And so like, I guess part of that was a, oh shit moment, but it would have been pretty confronting being on the mountain at that stage. Uh, well, I'll say no, only because I didn't know, I wasn't aware at the time. I, bec- I can't remember when I became aware that it had happened. You are aware of, again, this year, more people have died than any other year, which is not something to be, you know, be crowing about. But it's very, very unfortunate. Last year, there was only three deaths. This year, there's been 17. So we were getting, you're getting snapshots of things that, you know, that frankly, you're getting the story from back home before we got to the base camp because it's, but then again, you'd see occasionally the awful sight of a, of a helicopter longlining a body off the mountain. Like, so we were seeing that. And the one question people seem to be fascinated by, like, do you see dead bodies? It's like, oh, yeah, you know that though, because you've been told that before. And you, but we were seeing them as they were coming down to some of the, the people who just recently passed. But again, I didn't know who these people were. They've got, you know, for the sake of dignity, they've got shrouds and things on them. So the, that Australian gentleman, I can't remember when I heard that, but I don't think I was aware till I really got back down. And the one thing, as you mentioned there, I've been told by now, I'm not kidding, at least 100 people who said they thought the same thing, that they'd heard scant details and their mind immediately went to thinking that it was me, which I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm sorry for the gentleman in question and his family, obviously. I had no idea that there was 17. And so even that, I think, talks to well i guess the extremity of what this actually is and it was funny like oh since we chatted i've chatted to numerous people and they were like oh i've always thought about doing it and so many people (laughs) well sorry they've thought oh that might be something i'd like to do one day or whatever challenge myself and then when you actually talk to the statistics of how many people have made it to the top and what's actually involved and how long it actually takes and the different levels from what you'd mentioned last time people like oh okay there's a lot more to it than what is perceived on the outside. Well, and it's funny. Well, not funny, but I know my guiding company, I've seen one of their comments online in the last week or two. You know, they're firm, like they have a very, very firm view on the way safety should be dealt with and, and where these teams should be run up the mountain. And that's, there's one thing of actually having been there now, I was just so happy and proud to be part of the team I was part of because I could see things that were happening on other groups and you're just shaking your head going, how do these people, how are they allowed to operate up here? You know, and, and with the greatest respect to some of them, you know, they really shouldn't be have any sort of licences. Like our group, there was eight of us in climbers in our group and every, adventure consultants, when I were there, I asked them, what's the maximum you would have in your group? And they said 10. That's the most we think we can deal with and actually feel as though we're keeping you safe. One of the groups up there had 80 climbers in their group and you know i don't care how many guides you've got like that is just an absurd number to try and keep a corral on you know and move them up and down the mountain and that's just asking for trouble i think you know and i know again a lot of this stuff just comes back to money whether either whether they're the guiding companies are trying to get it or the clients are trying to pay the little as possible but 
you know, you need to be fair income and real about this. Like if you're paying less, that means that you're not getting something, you know, and I'd be asking. And as I think I did say last time, I appreciate it's very expensive to shoot. Some people, that's all they can afford. And if that's all they can afford, that's fine. But, gee whiz, there's no way I'd be compromising on my safety just for, you know, a few thousand dollars because I don't want to get into specific examples of some of the people who passed away up there, but a lot of them, I would put in the preventable category if they had done their teams with better resources or how I would say it, you know. So I know people don't want to hear that, but that really is the reality. You know, these some of these teams really shouldn't be operating up there. Well, and let's give a little plug to Adventure Consultants because tell me about the team behind the scenes and the beautiful pastries and everything else you are accustomed to. Well, look, they are the sort of the group that pioneered these sort of expeditions. So they were pretty much the first commercial expedition operators up at Mount Everest, so back in 30 years ago. And everyone has probably, many people have seen that Everest movie from the 1996 disaster. Well, this isn't a great plug for this part for Adventure, but Adventure Consultants were one of the groups that unfortunately were part of that 1996 disaster. But the lessons that obviously were learned from that still echo through to this day. So look, Guy Cotter, who owns Adventure Consultants now was there then. Like Ang Dorji, my Sherpa and guide, was there. He was part of all of that way back in the early 90s. So I said last night, this was his 22nd successful summit. And Guy has, you know, like a lot of these New Zealand mountaineers, you know, very doesn't want to you have to drag the details out of them. They, they're not exactly, you know, forthcoming in terms of the incredible accomplishments they've done all around the world. But He's done a lot of first ascents in eight, seven or eight up the 8,000-metre mountains, and he's just a very experienced operator. And that's what 30 years or 32 years does on the mountain. So they are, you know, as I said earlier, they've seen the mistakes. Like they were there in 2014 and 2015. Like Unfortunately, in 2015, six of their team died and as part of that, the earthquake and what, you know, happened at base camp. So... That obviously has got nothing to do with mountain climbing. It's just a very unfortunate set of circumstances. So they've been, that's the one way, the best way I can describe it is that they've seen sort of every permutation of screw up, whether it's human or environmental up there on the mountain, and they know how to deal with it. And they're just, again, on this trip, of the eight people, two of our team were cut prior to the final rotation because they had made the call with those two individuals that either their fitness wasn't up to scratch or their skills weren't at a level they expected them to be and they'd given them enough warning, et cetera. And, that I, and I like that, not that they cut the two people, but the fact that they're uncompromising, they're ruthless. It doesn't matter that you've paid a significant sum of money. That's irrelevant to them. It's like, well, we expect you to be at a certain level and if you're not, you're going to create problems for you and us up the mountain. You know, And, and I know in those two particular individuals' cases, and I can't speak for them, but... I'm certain that they saved their lives. If they went high up the mountain, they were a, had a significantly higher chance of getting into, you know, into whatever level of danger. And I'm sure they're still smarting. That's what a good leadership outfit does is they make the hard decisions. And that's about as hard a decision as it gets is, you know, you've got a client who's paid. There's not many tour companies out there where you've paid an unfathomable amount of money and they basically say, no, nah, we're not letting you go any higher, you know. And, but that's them. That's them. And I don't see that happening anywhere else in any of the other groups in the mountain, you know. And that's the other thing is they are vetting all of us before I ask the question about how many people do they apply to join their crew and, and it's quite a significant number. So they are actually 
doing a, as good a vetting job as they can to make sure they're getting people that they believe will fit in with their culture, but also have a greatest opportunity to get to the top and have a good climbing CV. So they don't just take people, as I was sort of alluding to at the very start of this, this question, people are going up there almost and it's their first time they've had a mountaineering experience, like which is just shouldn't be allowed to happen, but it continues to happen up there. Like, as, I, as you were saying, some people who have shown an interest in this and maybe going and doing this would find an avenue for in one of the operators up there to actually go and try this. And that, okay, if they got there, that's incredible. But frankly, I just find that to be reckless and extreme because I looked at so many things on this trip and it's hard to think of one that comes to mind now, but there's so, my level of experience on so many different prior expeditions came into play on this one where you just know what to do in a certain situation and it's just life experience, but in this case, a very specific niche experience. But if you haven't had that before, particularly in the environment you're in, you know, things can turn bad quickly, you know what I mean? So I have this big body of knowledge I can rely upon to help me out in certain situations, like muscle memory, you know, just know exactly what I'm going to do when something bad is happening in front of you, you know? Yeah, that natural reaction. So tell me, with the benefit of hindsight, what was something which pleasantly surprised you up on the mountain and that whole trip? Well, I suppose the first thing is maybe not present, but one thing I'd probably look forward to doing for so many years, and it absolutely exceeded my expectations, was the walk-in, the hike. The, the hike to Everest Base Camp is obviously one of the more well-known hikes around the world, and it was just stunning. Like I, And obviously it's something I enjoy doing, but so what, there were some of the days there where you're just pinching yourself because it is just an incredible view the entire day. You know, it's you just can't get over the height of these mountains that are sort of looming above you and the precipitous, you know, drops down to the river valleys and it's just beautiful. And then you've got, you know, herds of yaks walking past, you know, like, like it's just you're ticking all these little boxes. It's just it was absolutely beautiful. Look, the food, I've obviously been on these trips before, but the food did surprise me in terms of just it just the consistent quality. I think it's one thing people do ask me a lot about because I think people expect you're just eating stuff out of a bag, like rehydrated, like a lot of camping sort of expeditions do. And there's no criticism of that. Sometimes that's all that you can do in a in very rudimentary cooking environment. But this kitchen, we had four cooks just cooking for us. The Sherpas had four cooks cooking for us. Camp two, there was four cooks that sat at camp two for the entire season. They didn't come up, come down. They stayed at camp two for the entire three-month season because the Sherpas are going past so often. They need people there to, to cook for them. So we are so well catered for, despite all of that. Like I was conscious that I needed to keep eating because I know I lose weight. But you don't know also you've got to put your energy stores in. So I would take every opportunity to have seconds and thirds of things, which is not normally my bag. I still lost eight kilos despite all of that, which sort of shows you how much sort of energy you, you're putting out. And look, I suppose... I, maybe I didn't find this surprising as well. They're just my teammates. They most of these trips you go on, you generally with people you don't know. I've been fortunate on some trips to be able to go with crews that I know everyone, and that's obviously great. But of my climbing crew, I really only knew one well. I knew another lady from America to an extent, but I wouldn't say I knew her well. But the rest of them were just all completely unknown to me. But they will be friends for life. I have no doubt about that. But and even people ancillary to the climbing, like we had a young doctor in our team. I think Ben was only 28, Ben Alba. He's a Scottish, young Scottish bloke, just fat, just an absolutely brilliant guy. Like Benny and I would, would most mornings, this will just show you the level. So you would have tent tea, which at base camp, 
I don't drink tea or coffee, so it was wasted on me. But you would have the cook boys would turn up at your tent, you'd hear them, obviously, and then they would give you a hot towel, you know, to wake you up and whatever you wanted for tent tea. Now, I, as I said, I didn't drink tent tea, so I just would go to the, the main dining tent and I'd just sit there with Benny in front of the heater, just shooting the breeze for half an hour or an hour before everyone turned up for breakfast sort of thing. And, you know, just a really great guy, looked after us so incredibly well. We were one of the only, I think, of all the expedition crews on the mountain, there's only like four that had the benefit of actually having a doctor in their team, you know. Like, and again, when I got sick, even on the way in, I got a, a cough on the way in, you got someone there just to help you every single day and give you the best possible and the quickest possible exit from that, you know, problem. Like, so we were, again, you're paying for that, but that has its own benefits. So, yeah, I can't criticise anything about the way our expedition ran and the people who were a part of it. So I've got one question just around the tea. Did you manage to sneak in any contraband cans of tea? <laughs> oh, well, you remembered that. No, no, I didn't, only because that's extra weight. But I can tell you right now, the one thing, because you crave things like incredibly, and it wasn't just me, everyone was craving Coke or just something that bubbled on your tongue, just anything different. And the, after our very first rotation, we got all the way back down to the icefall. Waiting for us at the bottom of the icefall was the sort of the head Sherpa, effectively, who runs everything back at base camp. And he, out of his bag, he just pulled all these bottles of Coke for us. And like, I, I could have cried. Like it was, so that became like a bit of a thing. Every time we came back down the mountain, we'd get a bottle of Coke. And when you think about that, it's not such a big thing, but to get a bottle of Coke, to base camp is $10 US. Like everything has a cost to it, you know. So it's the sort of thing they obviously treat it as a special thing and it should be. It's, you shouldn't have a Coke there every day because it's just as extraordinarily expensive, you know. So I did appreciate it, like little things like that. So no Vs, but I, I did have a couple of sneaky Cokes, which I will never forget. Well, I think if Coca-Cola caught one for that, they've got a pretty good advertising campaign, don't they? Well, look... I was slightly boring, but all the way up through the valley, I was keeping a diary and I was writing down. I had a little Coke index in terms of telling me how expensive things were getting. So um, I did keep a track of Coke, which says probably more about me than anything else. (laughs) I'm intrigued. Other cravings or random thoughts or things that came to you? Well, look, I can tell you the one thing which I've well and truly satiated since I've been back here was like a beef burger. Like They were cooking burgers for us at camp, which again were bloody amazing, but Chicken, they were mostly chicken and there was no beef to speak of. And I think that's largely because of the Hindu influence, which I didn't really fully join the dots for a while there. Because, look, they're mostly Hindu, but the Sherpas are all Buddhist. So there's really no Hinduism on the mountain. And that's one thing I suppose I should, I'll get onto that, but yeah, burg, like a beef burger I was just dying for and a steak, like a good steak, which, so I've, as I said, since I've been back, I've well and truly knocked both of those on the head. But the one thing I suppose that surprised me as well, I'm not religious in any way, shape or form. In fact, you know, I'm not disrespectful to anyone's religion, but it's like you can deal with that over there as long as no one's, you know, bothering me with the go crazy, but I just really don't want to hear anything about it. It just doesn't come into my life. But we had a number of puja ceremonies, it's the Sherpas, the Lama, local Lama comes up from down the valley and it's quite an intricate ceremony, which I won't, but it goes for hours and I won't go through it all, but there's a lot of chanting, prayer reading, rice throwing, weird water coming out of Coke, plastic Coke bottles and, you know, like there's a lot of stuff going on. But you end up, I found 
that I was just letting all of that, just I was embracing all of that because I just thought all of this is trying to get rid of the, the fear in you is like they were actually saying that. Some of these little things like we had necklaces they gave to us, which was to push the fear out of you and also give you safe passage up the mountain. And I just thought, what a hypocrite I am because I was embracing all because I'll do any any little lucky thing that will do that for me, I will completely accept all of that. And I couldn't believe, again, as I said, I was completely happy to do all of this. Like when we would leave camp at the midnight to go up through the ice wall, the puja, it's called a lapser. It's like the ceremonial altar, I suppose. It stays there the whole time. It's got all the prayer flags leading off it. It's quite ornate in terms of everything that's on it. We would do 360-degree laps of this thing before we would leave camp, and there would be the main sheriff would be up. He'd be burning juniper. We'd be throwing rice. The, the sheriffs would be behind us chanting. Like there, and as I said, I would do. I'm getting goosebumps now. Think about it because it's like I would just be completely accepting that because I thought, well, they're doing this for me. They're doing this because this is what they believe in, and I need to believe this for the moment because, you know, to do anything to the contrary might put me in someone's bad books, and I didn't want that to happen. So, I'm not saying I became religious, but I certainly for a couple of months, was prepared to accept whatever was happening, if you understand what I mean. Believing in something bigger, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm not going to come to... I, that being said, I've never really thought about Buddhism, but there's got there's some good tenets in Buddhism, but I'm not prepared to embrace it fully. What's this space? There might be a part three. <laughs> <laughs> when people have asked you questions, has anyone really stumped you on anything yet? Uh No. No, because I suppose they might in a couple of years. I wrote very comprehensive diary notes, which I always do on all these trips because you, you just forget things so quickly. So, look, there's a few things that I surprise me. Some people, and I certainly won't go into this for your listeners, but some people are just fascinated by the whole toilet routine. I mean, truly fascinated where it scares me a little bit in terms of what, you know, why they're so fascinated by it. And so I look like, I can't believe how much I've had to go through that chapter and verse. And I mean, chapter and verse for some people. But no one's really stumped me. The one, as I think I've sort of alluded to, the outpouring of interest just is still incredible. I can't believe it. I've been asked to speak at a couple of the Cotton Conference coming up in Toowoomba in a month or so. I've been asked to speak at that. And there's a couple of things I which I won't go into details yet because they haven't been finally confirmed. But in circumstances where I'm still quite down on myself that I haven't achieved what I wanted to achieve and what I set out to achieve, some people are just really think there's a story here that still needs to be told in terms of, I suppose, you know, preparation, but also decision-making, which I'll have to see in a month's time, I'll give my first presentation on it all, but it's still going to be pretty raw by that point. Have you got in your, and you don't have to answer it at all, but in your diary or anything, have you got quite philosophical about the whole piece? It's the journey, not the destination. Probably not. The last few days I still need to write. Like everything, I wrote my diary religiously every day, which became the topic of conversation around camp because everyone else's diaries would be days and days behind. But it gets so hard because I was writing it, like basically typing it into my phone. And those last few days, there's just too much going on. And and because it ended the way it ended, I haven't quite gotten back to it yet. So there might be a degree of wistfulness when I, I write the last few passages. But I suppose because the interesting well, wasn't so interesting for me, but my diary, I actually was sharing with a couple of people who expressed an, you know, an interest in reading it as I was going. So there was only about six or seven people that I, I shared it with. 
And some people just, because I was getting messages back from them, I think they didn't quite appreciate what you're going through a lot of the time up there. And it's not that I'm being overly frank, but it's just things like the observation which I made, which it's a very unusual, the whole thing's very unusual in the sense that you're, you're tapering for two months. Like my fitness level from when I started to when I finished was, was significantly less, but that's everyone's in the same boat. It's not like you can come back to base camp and sit on a exercise bike or bike or just do a, you know, a run to keep extra fitness levels while you're deliberately doing nothing, you know. So I think a lot of reading what I was going through at the time, people just have no real appreciation of, of the difficulty of the environment and what you're actually you're having to ex- exist in. I know we explained, we talked about this last time, you just, Base camp's quite comfortable, but as soon as you move up the mountain, everything everything gets hard to do. You know, that I was explaining to someone the other day, I think this is probably okay to explain, but it's getting moving slightly into the taller territory. But I once you go to bed at night, you don't want to leave your tent because it's too cold, you know. So if you have to go to urinate, let's just say that. We all have pee bottles, and the pee bottles, unfortunately, look exactly like your water bottles, but they, they do that because it's they're hard. No, this isn't going where you think it's going. But, but if you have to go, this is the thing that people find weird. It's like you don't then just leave it outside your sleeping bag because you wake up in the morning and you've got a frozen bottle, you know, block, and it's all, how do I get that out of the bottle? So you actually have to put that in your sleeping bag. Oh, that's all right. And people are sort of going, that's disgusting. I'm going, well, it's just the reality of what you have to deal with with that. Like, like the first, this is the first trip I've had where my toothpaste froze. Like I've used to things like sleep, you know, my sunscreen sits on my a frozen sunscreen many trips before, so I always leave it on my thigh when I go to sleep. It sits in a pocket on my thigh, so it's always against my body, so I can use it the next morning. But I've never had toothpaste freeze before. Like and I, you know, so this is just every single time you go to the mountain, there's a new thing you're going, oh, Jesus Christ, I've got to now think about that. You know, like so that's just the reality of being at a stupid altitude and a stupid temperature, you know. I definitely did think it was going another way, but that's also the original hot water bottle I heard. <laughs> there is a degree of that. Well, like, but again, like at base camp, that's a beautiful part. At base camp, we would every night when we go to sleep, we had two, two of our bottles. The, the cook boys would fill them with boiling water and we'd stick them in our sleeping bag. So we had every night, you'd just look at a little sort of rudimentary hot water bottle. And I got used to that. Like that's, you get a good night's sleep and you've got a couple of hot water bottles, literal bottles in your body sleeping bag. One of the routines that you've kept since you got home, Trent, you just got a little hot water bottle that you take to bed. Well, with power <laughs> prices, maybe it's not such a bad idea. <laughs> what about, and maybe, yeah, only another couple of questions for you, but something surprisingly that you learned about yourself? Well, I think that religious one is probably the one that jumps to mind. Look, the one thing I would say that when I was a bit younger, I was guilty of maybe being a bit stubborn, being a bit dogmatic sometimes. Of, I think... In my as I've gotten a bit older, I'm I am becoming a little bit more relaxed in that regard and prepared to accept. You know, like I was so regimented in the way I expect people to behave on some of these trips, and but you've just got to accept that people are different, and that's okay. And and frankly, it's to be embraced sometimes, and and you end up getting along with people that you maybe might not have previously. So I found that I'm I'm just letting things flow a bit more, I suppose which I, as I said, I don't know if that's normal. Most people, get to, as they get older, they get even worse in some of these traits, you know, get even more stubborn and more dogmatic. So I think I'm slowly working my way out of that that behaviour, which pleases me because it was not an aspect I thought was um, endearing. And I'm curious, 
Hamilton Locke might be curious as well. <laughs> no, I'm curious. Did your outlook on work and I guess the society that we live in here in Australia shift, change, refresh, frustrate at all? Well, the, let me answer in a slightly different way. Like I basically, as I, we discussed before I left, I had very capable team here who were able to pick up the cudgels and move matters along and pick up new matters that came in and basically keep an eye on my inbox. And whilst I was looking at emails, I mean, I'd see them and go, I don't know, like I really wasn't really reading anything. I didn't make a phone call for two months because, well, I couldn't. And I can tell you what, that felt pretty good. And I have no regret in saying it. Like it, it felt really good to be, I would, I'm sure, as we just, you just had mentioned, I would send the odd tweet, but I wasn't sitting on Twitter. I wasn't sitting on anything. You know, I basically, I didn't know what was going on out there in the world, which is not something I'm used to, but I was quite okay in embracing. Well, actually, I was getting a little bit annoyed that one of our team members, because they would be sitting on Instagram and telling us all the other gossip from all the other camps, and I sort of was going, I don't give a shit what's happening in the other camps. Like I said, all I care about is what's happening here. You know, if it's going to affect us, okay, well, maybe, but I don't want to know the scuttlebutt anywhere else because it doesn't, you know, it's just, it was like it was cluttering up my mind. So I really did absolutely decompress. And maybe that's probably why I was so foggy when I got back because I just forgot how to use my brain. But uh, I have caught up with a few of the more senior people here, not to the extent of really talking in any detail about this or things going forward. I'm sure we will in the coming weeks. But I did see they were quite supportive. I know I said that before, but they were very, very supportive and, and I'm sure they were watching um, as closely as, as everyone else. Like I know one of the, the very sweet young girls here at the office was telling me how she cried when she she learned that um, I hadn't made the top. And I said, well, God, I said, you're more invested in this than I am because I haven't even cried. So, but, you know, that's just the, some people really got so incredibly you know, locked into the progress, which, as I said, I find very touching. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think well, from the outside, and it probably means nothing to you at all, but like it, it is an incredible feat and it has been fascinating to chat with you, God, three and a bit months ago to the then today. And I'm looking forward to continuing when we bump into each other at various stages. And who even knows, you might be talking at the Ecker Breakfast this year. Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I, can, I can assure you of that. We'll start to probe. We'll be like, where is Trent popping up? <laughs> well, I'll be keen to have a beer, I can tell you, because last time I think we met, I'd had um, well, was six months off before I left and the two months I was away and I have had a few drinks since I've been back and I have been enjoying socialising a bit more and not having to duck off early. So hopefully I don't embrace that too hard, but it is nice to be able to not worry about, you know, I can't have a beer here because of, x y and z or training tomorrow so the social part of my life is certainly my dance card's a bit fuller than it was put it that way <laughs> well yeah I'm, I'm glad you actually came back to australia and you didn't just decide to take yourself to europe or something for a european summer off the back of it <laughs> i think uh, well talking about having a locker i think they'd absolutely have a problem with that because i'm a little bit in the red when it comes to leave at the moment so i'll work my way through that over the course of the next 12 months Oh, I can only imagine. Well, Trent, looking forward to catching up face-to-face and um, very glad that you made it back safely. And I'm sure this will be a journey which we continue to chat about and learn from years to come. So thank you. Thanks, Holly. No worries. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. 
We hope you're enjoying these podcasts. And well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.